Um, the total depravity, the total inability is that uh, man is so depraved in sin that he cannot respond to the gospel unless they are one of God's chosen ones. Limited atonement would be the view that Jesus did not die for all for salvation, that he died for all maybe in a general sense, as far as they would call common grace, but um, that he really only specifically died for his chosen, his elect, um, an irresistible grace. I for irresistible grace. This means that if you are one of the chosen ones, then you're not going to resist it. That it, um, it's impossible to. That once God's grace is working in you, that it compels you, it pulls you, it makes your will willing. To believe the gospel and you won't do any other. And perseverance of the saints um, would be, um, generally speaking, eternal security. Um, I would prefer to say, and we Calvinists would as well, that it's not so much the perseverance of the saints, but the perseverance of the Savior, that Jesus keeps us um, secure. Um, Arminianism has a focus on free will. And some aspects of it, um, not every Armenian, but some Armenians would come to the point where they believe that you could come to sinless ability, ability. That you could come to the point in life that you are so sanctified, you are so walking in the Spirit, that you never sin again. Uh, uh, that you have a free will to not sin. That is no longer part of your nature when you're saved, that you don't choose sin. Um, they would believe in the conditional election, that, that there is an election, but it's based on your faith, and some would go as far as say based on your works. Um, they would believe in an unlimited atonement, that Jesus died for all, um, but only those that believe the gospel will be saved. Some go even further. Most Armenians would not accept this fringe group as being the classification of them, but a universal atonement, which is the view that because Jesus died for everybody, everybody is saved, whether they believe the gospel or not, that Jesus will find some merit of good in them and accept them into heaven. And um, their view would be that God's grace cannot be rejected. You see, like on the Calvinism, it's nicely said as far as Tula. Okay? It's easier to remember. The Arminianism one is basically just the counterpoints. Um, Arminianism would teach that you could fall from grace, that you could get saved, and then through sin, okay, the ones that don't believe you're in sinless, becoming perfect, but. Um, you fall into sin, you fall from grace, and you lose your salvation. That you are no longer saved. Yeah, I hold a view that according to scripture, both have aspects of wrong teaching. That there are some aspects of Calvinism that are wrong, some aspects of Arminianism that are wrong, and some from both that I would believe are right. And so both of these systems usually come up when the doctrine of election comes up. Um, the two systems are man's way of devising what they think the Bible systematically teaches in regards to the Bible doctrine of election. 
And so these two systems are pretty much polar opposites. So only one system can be visually correct, or they can both be wrong. And now people that affirm to one system or the other usually claim that the others are not representing their views well. And I am not going to be blameless of that today. You know, there may be someone that tells me, Pastor, you didn't represent that quite right. I'm going to try to be as honest um, as I can. I'm not going to try to lie again. I'm not going to try to misrepresent um, any views um, at all. But generally speaking, the Armenian is going to say um, that the Calvinist isn't representing their views right, and the Calvinist is saying that the Armenian is not representing their views right. Like, one thing the Armenian would say is that Calvinists don't believe in soul winning because God already predetermined everything. Where a Calvinist would say, no, that would be hyper Calvinism. We still believe we're to obey God's call um, to be a witness. Uh, other names for Calvinism, Reform. You know, you hear things, or people talk about the Reform Church or um, Reformation. Um, generally, they're always just talking about um, Calvinism with another word. Um, sovereign Grace is another um, key phrase that's usually used in Calvinist circles um, that they believe in sovereign grace, that God sovereignly bestows his grace upon uh, certain people and certain people he doesn't. In the lesson today, we might either just get through the T and the Tua, or we might get through the T and half of you on unconditional election. We'll just see how far we go. I don't want to do too much overload that you're like, okay, what did he even say? Uh, and so, I mean, I don't want to go too short here, which usually that's not a problem. But um, to avoid conflict, many Calvinists refer to Calvinism as doctrines of grace. But it sounds much better than Calvinism. Because when we talk about Calvinism, what's that go back to? It goes to John Calvin, um, what was just the term is popular from John Calvin wrote Institutes of Christian Religion, and that's where he talks about the election um, of God and that, that God has elected some to sound a salvation and some to damnation. And so that's where it gets the term from. John Calvin got a lot of his thinking from Augustine, Augustine um, from like the fourth century. And, and so that's where he kind of gets that from. Um, Arminianism was kind of became pop, popular from Jacob Arminianism. And so we don't got time to get into all the history. But some other common buzzwords predestination, foreordained, election, elect, chosen. These are also Bible words. There's nothing wrong with these terms or unbiblical with these terms. I'm just saying that in Calvinist circles, there is a hyper focus on these words. That um, it, it wouldn't be surprising if you went and visited a Calvinist and Reformed church and that in the message there would be some aspect of Calvinism um, mentioned. And it's not always going to be the case. But you know, I just found out about New Reformed Church in our area, and so I went and listened to a message. Boom. First message I listened to, it wasn't intentional, but it was about Calvinism. 
Uh, and so it does become a hobby horse uh, in, in some circles. Now, there were, I went to, I once went to um, a John McArthur conference, who's uh, the Shepherds Conference. He's known to be a Calvinist, I think, um, as far as for most, I think he's pretty balanced in that he's not usually hobby horse in that. But the conference I went, every single message was on Calvinism with the exception of um, one or two, and there were like 20 messages we listened to, and those two still quoted John Calvin. And so there still had to be some aspect um, to it. Now I've heard other years, and it wasn't like that. It just happened to be um, that year. I had a Calvinist friend of mine said, man, it was just when God foreordained that you needed to hear these messages. And so everyone was on Calvinism. Because I told him, I go, that's why I just don't like God. It kind of becomes a hobby horse. And at times you know it doesn't, and then that's what it was. And now any group of believers can have that potential of falling in for something becomes a hobby horse. Okay, hey, in our church here, um, Avalon Baptist Church, we're an independent Baptist church, and um, we preach exclusively um, for our services from the King James Version of the Bible. Now, some churches can get to a point where that becomes such a focus where they're talking about that every single Sunday. And I don't think that's helpful. I don't think that helps give um, the balance of scripture and on inspiration and preservation. And so, like some Calvinists, they're going to be focused on it. Others, maybe not. They believe it, but they're not hyper-focused um, on it. And so I think anything, you know, in life, we need to have a balance. You know, we're to teach and preach the whole counsel of God. And now if every single verse was on that particular view, then that's what we would preach on. But if it's not, we should not try to make it fit. So we'll start with total depravity. And um, what does the Bible teach and what would Calvinists um, typically hold to? Um, total depravity is the doctrine that teaches that human nature is totally corrupt and sinful as a result of the fall in the Garden of Eden. Now, most Bible believers would say, yeah, that's, we, we agree with that, we believe that, and we'll, we'll get to that. Calvinists take it a step further with what is called total inability. That because of the fall of the fall, man is unable to believe the gospel unless the Spirit of God causes him to be born again first. That this will only happen if they're part of God's pre-chosen elect. The rest were to be left in their sin without inability to believe the gospel. Um, if he, some scripture uses proof texts for total inability. Ephesians 2.1, and you have he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Uh, they will say that a dead man can't believe anything unless God first regenerates him. So that a dead man is dead in his sins, and because he uses the metaphor he's dead, then he cannot believe the gospel unless God first quickens him and makes him born again. A.W.P. I'm a Calvinist, and I think some Calvinists would even say a hyper-Calvinist. Uh, but um, faith, he says, faith is not the cause of the new birth, but 
but the consequence of it. This ought not to need argument. Faith is a spiritual grace, the fruit of the spiritual nature, and because the unregenerate are spiritually dead, dead in trespasses and sins, then it follows that faith from them is impossible, for a dead man cannot believe anything. And so that's the argument. If dead in sins, a dead man cannot believe the gospel. And so that's the doctrine of the total inability. That unless God preordained, foreordained, elected you to salvation personally, and irresistibly regenerates you, you cannot believe the gospel. That every time we spread the gospel to people, it falls on deaf ears if they're not um, part of the chosen. I think that kind of thinking is inconsistent with itself and illogical because the dead man wouldn't be able to reject the gospel either if you're going to take it to be that metaphor that literally. Um, the dead man wouldn't be able to sin either. And so when the Bible says we're dead in trespasses and sins, it's not talking about like literally we're dead, but that spiritually, yes, we are dead. Um, we're separated from Christ. And um, unless we are born again, which we'll talk about um, that, like speaking to Calvin, it says you're born again to have faith. What I teach and preach is, you know what, to, you know, repent, believe the gospel, and then the Spirit of God regenerates you. The Spirit of God first works on you. The Spirit of God draws, um, brings conviction upon you, but that you must respond to the gospel. I don't believe that God has made us enable or um, have the inability to respond, even though we are tainted with sin. Uh, Calvinism teaches regarding regeneration, that one is born again before there has been faith placed in Christ. Uh, um, Wayne Grudem, in the order of salvation, he talks about, you know, there's God's election, preordained, the gospel call, you give the message that God regenerates, causes you to be born again, so you could have faith. But you notice, you know, over and over in the scripture, the Bible doesn't say, all right, you know what? You're going to be born again one day, and God's going to give you the ability to have faith. No, over and over, the call is, believe the gospel. You know what? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You know what? Every Calvinists don't give the gospel in the sense of saying, okay, now if you are one of God's elect, God's going to make you want to believe. Okay? At least I haven't heard Calvinists. Um, typically say it um, like that. And, and so they give gospel. If you believe the gospel, you'll be saved. But they believe behind the scenes, they're only believing because God chose them and caused them to be born again. John 3, 3 is used to prove that regeneration comes before faith. But it says nothing of that effect. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Doesn't say, okay, you're only gonna, um, um, that you're going to have faith because you were born again. Okay, it doesn't say regeneration, is there, so it doesn't really say that. Um, Jesus it does explain how to be born again. This is the same chapter, John chapter three, um, talking to Nicodemus. Jesus says that whosoever believeth in him 
should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And so here Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus how to be born again. That he needs to believe on Jesus. He doesn't give it in a format of, hey, if you're born again, you'll start believing in me. Okay? He tells them to believe. It does not say they perish because they were not elected for salvation. Um, Ephesians 2 teaches that one is made alive by Christ through faith, by grace. Um, even when we were dead in sins, have quickened us together, means have made alive with Christ. By grace ye are saved, for by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so the scriptures do not teach that one is born again and then has the ability to have faith in Christ. But that when one repents and believes the gospel, he is born again, regenerated by the Spirit. And it's a gift from God. Now both Calvinists and non-Calvinists, but not Arminians, will um, use this verse in a different sense. The Calvinists will use this verse, okay, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Meaning, and they'll say it's, that faith isn't a faith you have yourself. That God's grace made you able to have that faith. And then um, where the non-Calvinists myself say, yeah, you know what, we're saved by grace through faith. That is that grace, the salvation is a gift of God. That is not a works, but that faith is distinct from a work. Calvinists would hold that if it's your faith, then that means it's your work. I believe God showing that there's a distinction between faith and works. An Arminian now would believe that you are saved in part by your works. That you, you have faith, but you need to keep doing good works, you need to stay faithful, or that you need to keep on believing to ensure um, your salvation. Okay, now what does the Bible teach about total depravity? Okay, man is totally morally corrupt. Bible is clear about this. As it's written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Okay, we are not born with that nature of just always wanting to do good. You know, you don't need to teach a baby to lie, okay? They, they, they just naturally start to put on that kind of behavior, okay? Bible talks about since the fall that in Adam all die. And Calvinists would take this verse further to say, okay, see, we see no man seek after God. That means no one is able to be saved unless they were preordained, chosen, and regenerated. Okay? Now, I would agree to the point that, yes, no one seeks God. We do not 
man does not wake up and be like, I am seeking after God. Now, you know what? The, the Spirit of God does work in the life. The Bible talks about um, that the Spirit of God reproves the world, and we'll get into that maybe next week. But the Spirit of God brings conviction upon the world, reproves the world, um, and, and shows them what's righteous. Um, as the Bible says, we love Him because He first loved us. Okay, so it's biblical that you know if God did not seek after us, we would all be lost. None of us would be saved if God did not work first. Okay? And that's where the colonists takes it to another level meaning. Okay, that means you have to be born again before you have faith. I don't take it um, that far. Okay? It's yeah, we don't seek after God, it's the Spirit of God works, brings conviction upon our life. And, um, but it's up to us to believe the gospel or to reject it. But the Bible is clear that we are totally depraved. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Okay? We all fall short of the glory of God with the exception of Jesus Christ. It's for dead in trespasses and sins. And you have a quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Before we're saved, our spirit is dead. We're, we're, we're lost. Man is spiritually blind, but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Okay, so until God does give us the measure of light to respond, we are, we are hopeless, we are lost. But nowhere does the Scripture teach that man is corrupt in the fashion that he can't even respond to the gospel. Now, the Calvinist perspective would be because man is tainted with sin, that he can't make a positive choice to believe the gospel. I don't believe the Bible anywhere teaches that, that man cannot respond to the gospel, or that there's some that can and some that can't. Um, if God did not extend his grace and mercy, all of mankind would perish. Man did not choose God. God chose to have grace and mercy on us under his conditions. So what does the Bible say about total inability? So now we're not talking about just total depravity, that we're born with a sinful nature, but about the doctrine of total inability that you can't respond. Um, that not everybody could respond. Uh, um, the Bible says that Jesus gives all a measure of light. That was the true light, which light of every man that cometh into the world. Okay, that God gives light. Romans 1, the Bible talks about how um, we are all without excuse. That the invisible things of the power of his God had, are clearly um, seen. The uh, Bible talks about how Jesus draws all men, and if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. Calvinists would change the all to mean all kinds, all sorts of men. You know what? Some, like say, some Americans, some Ethiopians, um, some Chinese, that means all kinds without distinction, but not literally meaning all. And they'll use some examples where, okay, um, where all can't, clearly can't mean all. 
um, where YK divided Pharisees said, man, all the world has gone after him. Okay? Literally, did every single person start following Christ? No. So they'll use some verses like that, where all can't literally mean all, and that was used in a hyperbole um, type sense. Uh, um, the Holy Spirit convicts the world. Nevertheless, I tell you that you the truth. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so based on this verse, I don't believe the Spirit of God only brings conviction on the elect, so to speak. But he brings conviction upon all the world, and so that all have that option to respond. God calls men, you know, how are we called? It's through the gospel. Going into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He called you by our gospel. And some people use about, you know, Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. Okay, okay, so like, why are some chosen but not all? Well, they're all called, okay? But they're not all chosen. Not all of them have believed the gospel, but we are called through by the gospel message. We see God commands all men to repent. And at times of this ignorance, God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. It's all men. Everywhere. Not a single person does he not call to repent. This is the message for all of them. It'd be pretty disingenuous to say and say, hey, repent, and then for God to forbid you from repenting. Say, no, no, I'm forcing you to stay blind so you can't come unto me. Um, God gives a call to believe. On Christ. Um, except, um, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. So you see that salvation is coming with belief. Okay? And it will quickly be part of the part on election, on unconditional or conditional. Calvinist view would be that it would be unconditional, um, not based on even your faith, but before the foundation of the world, God chose um, to save you, and that you would um, have faith. Um, the biblical use of the words election, elect, and chosen. Um, sometimes it's used corporately. And, and these are Bible words. We don't need to be afraid to use these words. Um, we see the nation of Israel is called God's elect. Uh, it says, For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God, the Lord thy God have chosen thee to be a special people unto himself, above all people that are upon the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn unto your fathers, how the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So we see the nation of Israel. 
is called God's chosen. He is called God's elect. And I believe that's where some of the confusion begins. It's not to understand the distinction between national election and individual election. Um, we'll continue on corporately about Israel. For Jacob, my servant, say, and Israel, my elect. I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee, though thou hast not known me. Okay, so God is calling them out. It's the nation. Now, this does not mean they are saved. Someone is not saved because they're a Jew. Okay, now, it's the people. They were considered God's people on earth. God chose them specifically uh, for his purpose. But we do see that Israel ends up rejecting um, God over time. Um, instead of continuing to believe and follow. Um, Paul says, Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sakes, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now there are three interpretations of this passage. Um, Paul endured for the ordained elect as in believers. Okay, the Calvinist view would be that um, he uh, it was believers that all endured all things for believers the ones that God elected to salvation um, another view um, would be that he endured for those whom God foreknew would believe and um, the third view which is to be viable is that he endured in hopes that the Israelites God's elect would obtain salvation. It could not mean the ordained elect as far as the individual believer, because that would give the idea that some of the elect may not obtain salvation. So that wouldn't make sense. And so, like right here, it talks about for the elect's sake, Daniel Paul was trying to minister to the Jews, and then over time he kept rejecting, and so then he moved on to. To Gentiles, but he wished that himself would curse if it were possible that he would die and go to hell for the salvation of his fellow Israelites. Um, but of course, that was it's not possible. You see, it used corporately as far as in the host of angels are God's elect. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. So sometimes when it's talking about God's elect, it's talking about the angels. Individually, we see Jesus Christ is called God's elect. Um, behold, my servant, whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delighted. I have put my spirit upon him, he shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. 1 Peter 2, 6. Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. And so Jesus Christ, as an individual, is called an elect uh, from God the Father. We see that believers are called God's elect. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. No one, brethren, beloved, your election of God. Okay? So we as believers, scripturally, biblically, are called elect. 
Now where it gets to is the basis of God's election. What is the basis of God's election? What's it based on? 1 Peter 1-2, I believe it's very clear. It says, elect according to what? The foreknowledge. The Greek word is prognosis. Of God the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, praise unto you, and peace be multiplied. Prognosis is used only twice in the Greek New Testament. The etymology of foreknowledge is traced to ancient Greek um, of the word prognosis, which is defined as foreknowledge, forethought, perceiving beforehand, prediction, prior acknowledgement, what is known beforehand. Nowhere is this word used to denote predestination or foreordination. Now, those are words that are in the Bible, but when it's related to salvation, they're not used. Prognosis is used as far as, as being called the elect, um, according to his foreknowledge. Those already with the theological system of Calvinism will read the meaning of foreordination into prognosis, but that's not the definition of an unbiased etymology or dictionary. Um, doctors will give a prognosis to their patients, um, which is the expected course of a disease. Um, it is the doctor's prediction of the outcome of the disease and the patient's chance of recovery. It's not the doctor's foredetermination for the patient, but of his foreknowledge based on what he knew beforehand regarding the disease patient. Of course, man's foreknowledge is not perfect as God's is, but this illustrates that prognosis does not mean predestined or determined beforehand. 1828 Webster's Dictionary for foreknowledge is knowledge of a thing before it happens, creations. If I foreknew, foreknowledge had no influence on their fault. Okay, so it's not foreordained, it's simply known beforehand. So the Bible says we're called elect, but according to his foreknowledge. God knows those who are his. He knows who's going to be saved. He is not surprised. Okay? When someone calls upon the Lord for salvation, it's not like, whoa, I got another one I didn't know I was going to get. It's not a surprise to God. Now, the Bible does say in the midst of the angels, there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that we so there is rejoicing. Now there's another um, Greek word that is translated as foreordination by Peter in this same chapter. Okay, we used before it was prognosis, elect according to his foreknowledge. Later in the chapter, he uses the word foreordained. Uh, and if you call it a father who without respect of persons judge it according to every man's work, Pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, that silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained. Okay, different word than foreknowledge. 
is a different Greek word. It's progenoscope. Probably not saying it right. Okay, but that's how, how you would spill it, transliterate. Um, um, he was verily, verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you by him. Do by him you believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory that your faith and hope might be in God. Okay, so progenosco means sometimes means foreordained, sometimes it could mean foreknowledge depending on this linguistic context, but here it is accurately translated as foreordained. <laughs> and before the foundation of the world, God already had planned foreordained that Jesus would die for us. That was already foreordained. That was not just foreknowledge known. That was God's intentional plan. The great words used in Peter, 1 Peter 1, 2, and 20, are not the same word. Okay? So we are called the elect according to God's foreknowledge. Not foreordination. Jesus Christ was ordained to shed his blood that we might have life in him. There is even another Greek word, Christo, which consistently gives the meaning of foreordained, ordained, or determined before him. And we'll look at some scriptures that is using. Uh, because he have appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by that man, Jesus, okay, whom he hath ordained. Whereof he hath given assurance unto all men that he hath raised him from the dead. Another verse. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that it is he which was ordained of God to be the judge of quick and dead, to give him, to him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Over and over. You see the gospel offer is to whosoever, whosoever will believe, whosoever will come unto the water of life may take freely. Acts 2, 23, him being delivered by the determinate, word horizon, counsel and foreknowledge, prognosis of God, he have taken and by the wicked hands have crucified and slain. So here we see both words are used in the same verse. Okay, if God's foreordained something, of course he also has the foreknowledge of it. But another passage where it talks about just foreknowledge, it does not mean he's foreordained. It just means he knows beforehand. But here we see, by a determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, he crucified Jesus. God, God already had that plan, and God already knew that was going to um, happen. Um, God knew we were going to sin. God knew Adam was going to sin. But nowhere does the Bible say he ordained Adam to sin. The Bible even says if we are tempted to not say that God drew us into temptation, that God drew us to lust, that God does not tempt us with sin. And that's where the end means of Calvinism does lead to fatalism that if God, they it goes to the view that every single action happens is ordained of God. Okay? That 
you're sitting here, that's ordained of God. You take a cup of water, drink of water, that was ordained of God, that you would do that at that moment, and then it leads to a point of our sin is preordained of God. Now we do see, as we see in this verse, that God will preordain that he will use those that are already wicked and use them as his sword to punish his people. Sometimes can we see that he'll use the wickedness that people are using to accomplish his glory still, but that wickedness itself was not ordained of God. Uh, uh, the Bible stops us, according to God's foreknowledge of us being in Christ, blessed in Ephesians, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as he have chosen us, okay, Calvinists will focus on the chosen us, that, okay, before that we're chosen, but how does he choose us? He chooses us in him before the foundation of the world. Okay, so that before the foundation of the world, it is in Christ that we would receive salvation. That was the plan, that salvation would only be through and in Christ. And that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. And so God elected, chose us according, especially as we read it in 1 Peter 1, 2, elect us according to his foreknowledge, and as the Ephesians says, in him. It's how God chooses us, it's through Christ, it's in Jesus. So before the foundation of the world, God determined that it would be through Christ that we would be predestined unto the adoption into his family. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No man goes unto the Father but through Christ. Some will object to this interpretation, but we must understand the Bible does not contradict itself. If God unconditionally elected only certain people to salvation, then that makes the scriptures that say, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved untrue, because whosoever would not really apply to whosoever. Um, since that would mean that anyone cannot get saved unless they were chosen unconditional. Based on the scriptures, it's according to God's foreknowledge of those who would trust in Christ that are called God's elect people. Alright, that's T, and that's half of you. Okay? So just half of you. Uh, for more, come back next week and we'll deal with some of the verses. Um, the Calvinists would use um, some of these, what we already covered, but other verses that Calvinists would use to teach unconditional election. And one of the big ones, read it um, at home this week, is Romans chapter 9. Okay, people think that non-Calvinists are afraid of Romans 9. It's nothing to be afraid of. Read it. You know, you might be a little confused at first. It's a big, it's a heavy um, topic. But um, we'll explain it <clears throat> next week um, with the whole context of Romans 8, Romans 9, Romans 10, Romans 11, um, what it talks about, how, you know, when the Bible talks about who are we that were pious against God, why make you sell me this? And then it talks about how God hardened um, Pharaoh's heart and stuff.
God bless you. Shake hands, fellowship, be friendly. Uh, to meet you out there if you have any questions as well.